Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the impact the vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister has had on markets, as well as how the growth of social media may be affecting our judgments as investors. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Olivia Gleeson, UK Government Relations Expert, Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Welcome to today's Word on the Street podcast. This week, the news has been dominated by the Prime Minister's confidence vote on Monday evening, and also the ongoing acquisition of the largest social media platform, Whilst we won't get into the investment case for social media, it did seem like a good time to talk about both the impacts of political events and using social media and how it may affect our judgments as investors. So I am glad to be joined by Olivia Gleeson from our government relationships team to help us understand the political events and Rob Smith, our head of behavioural finance, and as always, Will Hobbs, our chief investment officer. Before we get into politics, though, Will, I'm going to come to you first. What has been happening this week in terms of the economy and markets? Anything to report? What is on the team's mind? Well, none of us are much wiser, I have to admit, Sarah. Uh, It's still a pretty confusing backdrop, as we've warned before. If we do a very brief world tour, it's the US that matters most for investors, of course. Data-wise, the economy is slowing, um, which is kind of what we want. That may sound perverse, but central bankers are as we've said many times before, urgently trying to cool demand so so that it ceases to kind of swamp the available supply of everything from workers to various goods and services and bring inflation back to heel. However, incoming economic data, although it is slowing, that data continued to suggest that the economy has quite a bit of cooling off to do before central bankers will feel sufficiently relaxed to return to nurture mode. Europe has a bit more of a job to do on this. And with the added complication, obviously, of the gathering tragedy in Ukraine, um, the economic blowback here is obviously markedly greater. Um, and But we did see this week that the ECB uh, was the sort of latest in the line of central banks, you know, trying to convince, not trying to convince, being pretty convincing in its plans to sort of really combat inflation. So, you you know, you are likely to see from July, really back-to-back interest rate rises from uh, the ECB into next year as well. So the fight against inflation continues and that continues to unsettle markets. That would be the broad, brief summary before we get into the juicier political stuff. Okay, well, thanks, Will. So, Olivia, let's get into the juicy political stuff. Um, the confidence vote this week. Can you tell us and the listeners exactly what happened? Yeah, of course. I mean, it certainly dominated the the news agenda. So I think listeners will have to sort of forgive me for sort of reiterating uh, what happened. But as you know, there was a vote of no confidence called in the Prime Minister on Monday, uh, 6th of June. And that followed that crucial threshold of 54 letters being sent into the 1922 committee from backbench Conservative MPs. Now, we don't know exactly when that threshold was reached. There are rumours it was reached sort of over the Jubilee weekend, but the Prime Minister was given a little bit of respite until Monday, and then the vote was called. Now, a secret ballot was then held amongst all Conservative MPs that evening, and the Prime Minister sort of needed to secure something called a simple majority, which is equating to 180 votes. And I think, you know, what was important to bear in mind at that point is there was actually 160 or to 170 MPs the government's own payroll. So, you know, ministers, junior ministers who would naturally be expected to back the prime minister in such a vote. 
So he only actually needed to secure, in theory, a few more votes than that to reach that sort of simple majority. Now, in the end, he secured a majority of 211 votes with a minority of 148 Conservative MPs uh, voting against him. But I think, you know, whilst he obviously saw off the vote, I think the size of the victory is pretty important to dwell on. Now, only 59% of the Conservative Parliamentary Party stated confidence in his leadership, which all, you know, you might forgive me for pointing out, is less than the 63% that Theresa May won in her vote of no confidence a few years ago. So, you know, undoubtedly it was a very slim victory that will have impacts for his authority, you know, both in the party and more widely. And I think the, the risk from this point is that his governing strategy might be effectively paralysed with so many of his own party having voted against him. But I'm sure you'll want to grill me a little bit more. Nothing's ever quite that straightforward in politics, so you'll probably want to sort of understand uh, what's going to happen next. Well, exactly, Olivia. I can't wait to find out. So what do you think this result does mean for the Prime Minister in the short term and what will happen next? Well, I'm going to do a bit of a Will Hobbs here and sort of say that actually it's quite important to think about what history can teach us. So he's clearly been rubbing off on me on these podcasts. <laughs> looking, at, looking at history, and I mentioned Theresa May already, you know, if we look back to her no confidence vote, she won that in December 2018 by a higher margin than, than Boris Johnson and then resigned only six months later uh, following some disastrous European election uh, results. And I think the point there is that, you know, whilst the Prime Minister might have survived to live another day, you know, based on this technical vote, he's still pretty vulnerable to events that could still trigger his downfall. And I think I have in mind sort of quite particular events. You know, we've got two forthcoming by-elections on June 23rd, which are sort of widely anticipated at this point to deliver pretty difficult results for the Conservatives. And I think, you know, in the event that those results are sort of catastrophically bad, we could see some cabinet members start to move against the Prime Minister. And without the confidence of one's cabinet, it, of course, becomes very difficult to govern. And I think the other thing I think I'd mention is public opinion polling. I think, you know, following the by-elections and also following the no confidence vote will be important. Now, remember those same MPs or ministers who backed him at the last confidence vote on the basis that, you know, despite his wavering popularity within the party, he is a vote winner in the public. Well, they could sing a very different tune if the results from those by-elections are catastrophically bad. Now, albeit by-elections are special circumstances, but I think MPs and ministers will be watching very closely to see if he's still able to be a vote winner at the polls. And then the final bit I should also mention is around speculation around the 1922 committee rules concerning a no-confidence vote, which could also dictate events. Now, this is pure speculation, so don't hold me to it, but Whilst the current rules are that you can only have one vote uh, or vote of no confidence in a prime minister within a 12-month period, there are rumours that the committee is minded to consider sort of more frequent timetables to prevent a prime minister clinging on to power if his party wants him or her to go. So we could see some movement there as well. You know, of course, the prime minister is aware of all of this and he'll really be doing everything in his power to sort of turn his fortunes round and reset his premiership from here you know we saw a big set piece speech on the economy uh, yesterday an intervention on on right to buy maybe something coming on uh, unions and rail strikes which could go down well uh, with the public so i think we'll definitely have lots to watch out for as he continues to try sort of reassert his authority going forward yeah thanks olivia i, I do think i understand it a bit more but it's clear that we're going to need to have you on again as um, more news comes out and especially if things start to change but rob coming over to you this feels like it does feel like very significant news from a political perspective. But what would we say to investors? Should they be thinking about what happens next and doing something about it? Hi, Sarah. Yeah, so 
I think you know, we'll all be able to discuss if there are any you know, potential specific economic or kind of market ramifications of, of the recent news. But I think the general note from me is that you know, things that happen kind of close to home, so um, news about you know, local politics or, or national politics, I should say, is always going to feel pretty impactful. I think if, especially if, you know, it's something where we have potentially strong views, um, so politics, you know, being one of those areas, or we think it might impact, you know, another area of our life, another part of our life, then it's very easy for us to think it must have an impact in other contexts and therefore like within potentially like investments. So it's very, it's very easy to, to off, to overplay, if you like, the importance of, of events on you know our investment outlook and our investment portfolios especially when we think that you know a lot of a lot of our listeners hopefully are you know are well diversified kind of globally and across different areas and sectors and stuff but will i don't know if there's anything specific you want to add nothing at all rob i think i'd repeat the line that we've been saying for ages about the uk which is look mostly and there are exceptions to this rule but the goings on in westminster don't tend to have a massive impact on capital markets. There are, you can see maybe some sort of uh, flutters in sterling, but but, but the, again, this was this was more kind of shrugged off by investors. Really, just like I say, focusing more on that central bank, uh, much less salacious central bank context. But that that seems to be the the main thing preoccupying markets at the moment. Well, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Will and Rob. I just want to come back to you. I know you've been writing a piece about the effects of social media and investors this week, and obviously people's reactions to this week's events are highly visible on social media. Is there anything you can share here? Yeah, of course. I think with with any social network, so even even you know a face to face social network, we tend to be drawn to people who are similar to us, who share sort of similar views and, and beliefs. And whilst you know th- there are times where that's really useful. Um, it also perpetuates our tendency to seek out and acknowledge information that confirms any kind of existing views or, or views that we're kind of building at that point in time and ignores or discredits anything to the contrary. So, you know, those those things play on each other, meaning that it's it's very easy to to start believing ideas to be to be true or to be stronger than they, they really are. And I think social media then just amplifies these effects as, you know, the information that you're shown and you're given is curated for you, whether you know how much it is or, or not. Um, and it's really created in a way that it is for you to like it because, you, you know, the, the social media platforms want you to read and then come back. And the way to do that is to give you information that you, you know you enjoy reading. And therefore, it's, it's likely to be stuff that's going to reinforce those existing views and beliefs even, even more so. And so it's even easier to become kind of more entrenched in, in certain ways of looking at the world, in certain beliefs, in certain kind of outlooks on what's going to happen going forward. And this obviously can give you a very unbalanced view and one that isn't necessarily aligned with the reality of the kind of longer term situation. I think one other thing that I mentioned in the article that I think is, is really interesting is the, um, is the effects of repetition um, on our kind of views and how we decide what we believe to be true or not. And you may think just because something is repeated that it doesn't necessarily mean, of course, we're going to believe it. But the truth is that repetition creates kind of familiarity, this sense of familiarity. And it's often very easy for us to substitute that sense of familiarity with with truth. Now, marketeers and authoritarian institutions have known this for some time. And that's why you see these sorts of um, tactics employed in those areas um, in terms of repeating messages. But What's really interesting is psychologists a while ago discovered that you don't even have to really repeat an entire statement of fact about an idea 
for it for it to for, for this repetition to kind of hold. And so there was a study where people who were repeatedly exposed to the phrase the body temperature of a chicken, um, and those people were much more likely to accept as true the statement that the body temperature of a chicken is sixty-two degrees Celsius, which is which is you know, or, or actually, or any other arbitrary number, so that they had different different um, groups, and they and they tried different numbers, and and it didn't really matter what the number was. If they'd been exposed to the start of the statement, they were more likely to believe that the other statement to be true, no matter what. Now, you know, in some of those cases, it's obviously not true. You know, the the, the body temperature of a chicken is actually less than that of a human. But you know, the familiarity of one phrase in the statement is is enough, is sufficient to make the whole statement feel familiar. And therefore, kind of true, and people tend to assess, as I said before, the relative importance of issues by the ease in which they can retrieve them from their memory, and that's largely determined by the extent of news coverage. If you know, if, you, if you're consuming news and stuff, so it, it, it just shows how you know reading the same types of messages, um, which obviously you're going to be repeated, you know, exposed to. And this isn't just social media, but social media, like I said, just kind of. It accelerates these things because it's just there's so much and it's and it's kind of curated for you it means it's very difficult sometimes to tell you know and get a really balanced view and I think like the, the last thing I want to want to say on this because this you know there's a lot we could we could talk about but it's just the effect of news in general and how strong it can be on us sort of psychologically so it can affect our mental health but also just our general long-term outlook on the world and one of the things that you know is important for long-term investors is obviously to you know have that view of you know future um kind of appreciation of, of capital markets otherwise otherwise why are you holding that basket of investments in the first place and what's really interesting is how news consumption can really affect our our our, our mental health more so than actually experiencing events and i say that because there was there was a study done um, in the aftermath of the tragic um, Boston Marathon bombing, if, if people remember that back in 2013. And what was really interesting about the research that was done after that was that when they looked at, you know, the people who were in the race, in the vicinity of the attack, um, and people who were like family members who had either had people injured or, or lost family members, you'd expect them to be, you know, the most affected by these events because they were very close to them. But actually, what was interesting is there was a group of people who were affected much, much worse than than that group in terms of, you know, effects of PTSD and, and just their general outlook and well-being. And those were people who consumed a lot of news around the time of the Boston Marathon. So they, they, they weren't involved in it. They didn't have any family members, you know, caught up in it. But just by viewing a lot of the images over and over again it gave them the worst side effects which is kind of fascinating in a way because you think that how can that be but but it's true and we see that in other areas as well and so it's really important to find balance you know in in life in general but especially in you know in amongst news and news sources so um to try and get that balance you know just be aware of what you're consuming potentially try and limit exposure where you can um and and that's really what's important for investors Thanks, Rob. I'm definitely going to take a look at that article, which is coming out in the next in focus, because I think I also need to read that and be more aware of my views and how they're being formed when using online media. But before we leave our listeners, Will, we're recording this on Friday morning and we have some economic data due to be released later today. Is there anything you and the team are looking out for today or in the near term? 
I'm not going to be fooled into making a hardcore forecast on <laughs> inflation data. Uh, Come on, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The most unpredictable of data series. No, I mean, I think the things that, Sarah, at, at the moment, a lot of the focus, like I said, is on that kind of central bank inflation story, you know. And I think for a lot of investors, it's really about, you know, when a central bank's going to return to that more familiar nurture mode, the one that we saw all of the last few cycles, which is really, you know, fighting disinflation and uh, really sort of not in this kind of, uh, desperately trying to get interest rates up um, to, to to restore credibility or to to keep credibility, um, and that's really what investors are looking at. Is it the end of the summer? Are we going to have to wait for all of that for markets to settle down? That's one of the big questions. The big unknown still, you know, and obviously the inflation data today is going to be important to that. There is some sense that inflation has peaked in the U.S., but there are also simmering concerns this week that you know the continued push up in oil prices and there are worries about inventories, global inventories there and the price that you will need oil prices to go to in order to incentivize suppliers to replenish those those inventories. So that's a concern that energy price inflation is going to continue to push back that peak in inflation a little bit. That's part of the action you've seen in sort of bond markets this um, this week. So it's important, but I'm not going to make a strong prediction on it. But the other thing, obviously, that I didn't mention at the beginning is China. So there was there's a bit of a sort of stop start thing here. There was some encouraging news, you know, uh, out of China with regards to, you know, some steady opening up. But then you've seen spots in Shanghai, um, you know, go back into lockdown. So this may be the sort of the, the story with China for a bit, which is that, you know, you're doing mass testing in order to do sort of try to do more focused, targeted lockdowns. But that can create some, you know, you've seen some, you know, a big um, slump in the sort of numbers coming out of China, maybe starting to sort of improve a little bit. But like I say, it's going to be an uneven path from here. But otherwise, it's about the test cricket. So, you know, to Rob's point, if you want to watch something uncontroversial, relaxing, even boring, take some solace in test cricket. It wasn't boring the last one, actually, but it might be this one. OK, well, thank you, Will, for that update and the um, cricket recommendation as well. Um, it seems like a good place to leave the discussion. So thank you, Olivia. Thank you, Rob and Will, for talking with us today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. I look forward to speaking with you all soon for another Word on the Streets. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. 